Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and this week's podcast starts out with a simple question. How come a guy who came out of business school 200 grand in debt didn't take a job to pay it off? And the podcast winds up as one of my favorite episodes. Touches upon Bono, Jennifer Lawrence, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Magic Johnson, Jennifer Gardner, and even the Pope. It's filled with some amazing stories. I wasn't expecting it, but I had a sense that I should sit down with Matt Polson after I got a referral from Emily with the great voice. In the beginning, I wasn't sure if I agreed to meet Matt because of his wonderful backstory or because of Emily's great voice. I just went with it, and I'm so glad I did. Matt has helped raise $130 million for roughly 350 charities through his company, Omaze. Not Amaze, Omaze. There's a reason for that, which you'll soon find out. Company works like this. Omaze creates a unique event. You can win a Ferrari Portofino with 20 grand in the trunk. Or bid to get in a tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger and go out and crush stuff. Or maybe you'd like to get flown out to L.A., put up in a ritzy hotel, and bake cookies with Jennifer Gardner. There are a lot of options, but the concept is you can donate 10 bucks, 25 or 5000 and get a certain number of entries to win the sweepstakes. Winner of the sweepstakes gets the Ferrari, or gets to get in a tank with Arnold, or to bake cookies with Jennifer. And the donation store Jennifer, and those cookies... Go to support the Epilepsy Foundation. You get the picture. Omaze has done this with many celebrities in roughly 350 charities and transformed a lot of lives. Wait till you hear about a girl named Chloe and Matt's own transformation. Trust me, this conversation gets to some very unexpected and deep places. Want to drop another surprise on you. My friends at Sportique made up some big questions t-shirts for my storytelling workshops. I went to Germany to do a workshop, and while I was in Munich, my son came across the stash. He reached into the box and felt one of those shirts. Couldn't believe how soft it was. You really can't blame him for taking one for himself. But then his girlfriend couldn't believe how soft it was. And he gave her one, too. The word spread. Pretty soon his friends heard about it. And now they're all wearing these sportique tees all the time because of how comfortable those tees feel. I can talk about sportique shirts and hoodies all day long, but you know something? You really have to feel the fabric to understand. So how about we do this? Send me an email with your definition of the word comfort and your shirt size, and I'll create a sweepstakes. My three favorite responses to the question, what is your definition of the word comfort? We'll get a big questions tee. If you're a winner, you'll understand what the people at Sportique mean when they say, roam in comfort. You can also go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E, and check out the hoodies, sweatpants, and other offerings. And get a 20% discount if you use the offer code CAL. So let me know your definition of the word comfort because the winners are definitely going to be able to feel it.
All right, make yourself comfortable and get ready for one of my favorite episodes of Big Questions. Let's get straight to Matt Polson. Where did the word omaze come from? It came, we had an intern, and her name was Missy Peregrim. She's actually a pretty, or a very accomplished actress, but she wanted to intern between seasons of Rookie Blue, which was a show she was on at the time. And she used to refer to anything that was more than amazing as amazing. And we just liked the spirit of that. And then we tested it, and people responded to it, and we called Omaze. Was there a moment where you heard it come out of your mouth, her mouth, where you just knew, that's it? Yeah, I did. And I, I felt it strong. My co-founder was not a fan at the time. And so we had to go back and forth and we had to do some market testing and all this. But basically, we were go, still going back and forth on what the name should be. And then we entered into this startup weekend competition. And it was the leading name at the time, but not one we had decided on. And so it just is what we used for that weekend. And then people really responded to it and they started saying amazing and all that kind of stuff. And so that kind of is how it how it happened. Okay. So how did it all happen? Because what little that I know, uh, you went to Penn yeah. Business School. Right. The famous the, Wharton Business School. The famous Wharton Business School. And uh, you come out, from what I read, you're a couple hundred grand in debt mm -hmm. most people would go seek a job to pay it off what did you do i did not do that i um <laughs> you know you have to be irrational to do to be an entrepreneur and i was definitely irrational or maybe insane but yeah i um you know my co-founder and i ryan were both in business school at the same time me at wharton and him at ucla and um we both had offers to go like we had done in this summer. I believe he had worked at Goldman and I and I worked at McKinsey because we never had real. Yeah, jobs. I mean that's how you pay it off. That's how you pay it off. That's <laughs> the whole system is designed to do that, right? And uh, and so and I had never had a real job before going to business school. We were just filmmakers. I had never even opened Excel before getting to Wharton, and so and then everyone there wanted to be a McKinsey consultant. And there's this really rigorous, comp, you know, kind of. Um, interview process and gotta so, go through the funnel yeah you gotta go through the funnel so i decided to do that and just kind of you know and learning going through case studies and learning how to think seemed like a valuable exercise but i really didn't I, I wasn't really intending to get that job but then i got one of them for the summer so i said okay i'll do that just to have that experience and then i was also writing a show for fox at the time so i did mckinsey and wrote the show for fox at the same time and then so you knew that you wanted to be attached to show business or yeah film we were in we were we were TV. in that before yeah yeah we had been we had we would had been doing cause content so our passion was using storytelling to inspire action and because the beauty of a story is that it enables you to connect with someone whose experiences are different than your own and when you do that you want to help that person and when you do that you feel more connected and so we had a real passion around that so we had done a bunch of different projects before school we had done. Um, Live Earth, which was the biggest concert ever thrown to raise awareness for climate change. It was on seven continents in one night and had everybody from the Rolling Stones to Kanye. We did um, a documentary series called, um, um, we did a Girl Rising. Sorry, I had a little brain fart there. Um, where 
It was about girls' education in the developing world. It was funded by Oprah, and Meryl Streep was the narrator. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Really yeah, well yeah. done. So we worked on the, yeah, we worked on the very early ones of that. We can't take credit for how good it became, but we were there at the beginning. Um, Plus the music, just. Music was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so we did a bunch of different projects like that. We did stuff with the Clinton Foundation, around their 10th anniversary global concert. So we were working with all these really influential people who um, authentically wanted to do good. But we realized we just we weren't doing that much good. You know, we were creating a lot of awareness around these projects, but we weren't creating a lot of impact. And we felt that was endemic to the cause content wow. space as a whole. And so that was what inspired us to go to business school in the first place. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, now I'm putting the pieces yeah. together. Here. So we went to business school to look for like something the way to make an impact. Yeah. Surround ourselves with people smarter than us, learn new ways of thinking, figure out a better model to do what we we're passionate about. And so we'd gone through the first year and hadn't figured that out, took that summer job. Now we're in the second year of business school and McKinsey has made this offer and I have to tell them by January 16th whether I'm gonna take it or not. And I still had not figured out what I, like what the manifestation of this new thing. I've been working hard and trying to figure out where I wanna do it. I wanted to be in storytelling, I wanted to be in impact, but um, hadn't figured it out. And so then I called them on January 16th and I said, look, um, I really appreciate the offer, but I just, I can't accept it. And they said, well, what are you gonna do? And I said, I haven't figured that out yet. And they said, what? <laughs> We've never heard that before. And I was like, I know, I know it's irrational because I'm in $200,000 in debt, but um, I just can't do this. It's not in my heart. And they said, okay, well, good luck. And then two days later we went to the, um, I flew back to LA and we went to this fundraiser that Magic Johnson was hosting for the Boys and Girls Club where he was auctioning off the chance to play basketball with him and go to the Lakers game but it was only available to the high net worth individuals sitting in the room. And Ryan and I were in the room, but not high net worth individuals. You know, we were- So you couldn't get in yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah, we were, were like, we're the guys who get, yeah, we're the guys who get invited to fill the table last minute. You know, we were in grad school. And so we watched as the auction went up to $15,000 and we couldn't afford to participate. But Magic is our childhood hero. Like there's nothing- And you wanna go. I wanna play, but I couldn't. And so we just said, we're like, that makes no sense. You know, when we're driving home that night, we're like, Magic has fans around the world, not just the people in that room. In fact, the people around the world care way more than the people in that room about playing basketball with Magic. So if we made it available to all of them online for the chance to win, you could raise so much more money, so much more awareness, open up a whole new donor base. And so that was the... So when you're having born. this conversation, like, do you immediately, immediately know, here it is! This is it. This is it. Like, I was yelling, this is it, and then it's going to be this, and then we're going to create content, and we're going to scale it out, and we're going to do pro Like, we just knew. Like, you, you, you saw could the whole see thing. the, whole, the thing whole thing in that yeah. one ride. Yeah. What kind yeah. of car was it? It was uh, a Nissan Xterra. <laughs> and like a 19, or not 19, it was probably 2000. I don't know what year it was, but it was a Nissan Xterra. And how long did the ride take? We were driving from... This was at the Beverly Hilton, where all these things are. Right. And we were driving back to Ryan's place in Westwood, which uh, is so where, not that far. So not that far. So but it was like, really it started, like, an, like, it started it, on the like drive. a 14 like, minute ride. Well, you got to get out of the parking lot and like, you know, like the Beverly Hilton doesn't make it too easy to do that. So by the time from like the time you decide you're going to leave the event to get back to his place was probably like 35 minutes. But yeah. In that 35 minutes, yeah. everything appeared to you. It did. Now, here's the thing. Like you had connections before because you were working 
on, on projects that were tethered to Oprah. How, like, how did you get those connections in the first place? By working with people who had connections. Like when we did Live Earth, it was Kevin Wall, the world's biggest live event producer. He started it. Um, and then we just got to know people. And then, you know, it's just like anything. You, you get in the world through someone else's relationships and then you meet people. Um, and then even with, but with Girl Rising, that was a guy named Richard Roger, uh, Richard Robbins, who's an amazing director, um, you know, and like and those are kind of his relationships and the, and the people at the documentary group um, had to have that relationship with Oprah and stuff like that. So that wasn't... How that many wasn't, years did you guys do that? We did that for like six years. Oh, see, you, the, this thing was all, it was loaded. Yeah. It was loaded. Yeah, yeah, we had spent our careers doing that, you know? We, we, yeah, I mean, we Live Earth was in 2007. We went to business, oh, so that was only a couple of years. I guess, I mean, we were in entertainment as like actors and writers before then, and then we realized like where our kind of passion evolved. I realized I wasn't like that good at acting, you know, and so we just kind of continued to evolve. But it all makes sense looking back, like how unique our experience was to set us up to do something like this, you know? But I think too often entrepreneurs tell their stories in reverse and it looks like they had like courage and prescience and knew exactly what to do with each time. And like the reality is, is we are lost along the way, so much of it, you know? But all those trials and tribulations and skills that we gained is like what made this kind of very unique business pop possible. How did the two of you originally meet? college we went to Stanford oh, together okay yeah and and so you both come out of Stanford yeah and you just start working together yeah like, we had done a bunch of different projects and we had um we had like sold this movie idea together and we got all this big representation it was all just kind of traditional comedy stuff and then and that evolved into did this show for Fox called Prius and Leo World Savers, which is about two stoners who accidentally watch Inconvenient Truth and then decide they have to save the world from global warming, but they have no <laughs> idea what they're doing. Um, so, you know, we were just doing it stuff It sounds like, like it's a little like what you went through. Yeah, I think then it became us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was kind of an unintentionally autobiographical. Yeah, not that we're stoners, but we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, because you can't get in on the magic bid, you decide to create a new kind of magic bid. Yeah. And and what would, did you understand that in the car too? Yes. You knew exactly how you're gonna do it. We knew exactly, well, we didn't know exactly all the steps to get there, but we knew the vision, if you look at the original deck that we created back in 2011 in business school, like what we said we're gonna do is what we've done. I mean, there's iterations on it, but it is very largely this. What are decks important? Are decks important? Yeah, because I hear always put it in a deck, put it in a deck, and I always wonder: Are people just saying that because that's what they hear? Do people actually look at the decks? Probably not, but you can't like you <laughs> have to I have thought. one. You know, I mean, it's it's evolves like. What the most important thing about a deck, I think, is that it actually forces you to crystallize and communicate and you know and boil down like what it is that you're doing. All right, so, so it's, it's more for you, it's, yeah. Than for but, the but I mean, it's like blocking and tackling of of investor meetings. Like they, you know, if you haven't gone, like if you don't have a deck, then you're 
you're kind of making a statement like I'm too good for a deck. Like you can either invest you and that's become kind of a trendy thing to do is like, hey, no, I'm not making you a deck. Like we're a hot company. Like do you want in or not? And so, but like we did not have the credibility to do that. So you made a deck. We made a deck. All right. So what was the first idea on how to make these events possible? And I guess you got to figure out a way to bring in more money for the foundation. So it makes the celebrity or the well-known person want to say, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, it's, it was tough at the beginning because we're selling people that we're going to raise more on these things, but we have no track record with which to That's done what it. I was you getting know? at. Yeah. So, no, it was, I mean. What's that stage like? It's hard. It's really hard. You know, we started our first experience to raise $780, and it was to be a guest judge on Cupcake Wars. You know? <laughs> but our buddy, yeah, $780. It was not successful. You know, so at the beginning, you just went to friends. You're, you're like, look, do me a solid. Like, we need to prove this out. You got to start somewhere. People, you know, the good news is. So you were asking them to put in bids, you mean? No, or? no, to like be the experience. Like, oh, to um, be the experience. Like, yeah, like friends who were actors or who had TV shows or whatever that we knew. That were not the big like Matt Damon's or, you know, George Clooney's. We didn't go there at the beginning. We went to kind of, you know, people who were earlier in their career but had a bit of a platform. And they yeah. were willing to kind of take a leap because they liked the idea and they were sick of the old school auction model. And, you know, and anytime you're taking on a problem, like there needs to be such an acute value proposition. It just needs to be so much better than what is out there. And, and so we, you know, and we offered that. And the other thing we did is we also, you can establish credibility by proxy, right? So like our model of like essentially entering a sweepstakes for the chance to win these things you know, President Obama had done that when he was running for office in 2012 as a fundraiser. He did these things with him and George Clooney, and they had raised $8 million for one night. And so we said, look, he did it. Like, see, he thinks this is a great idea. You know, we had already come up with the idea, but he started doing it. So we used his credibility, right? We used the credibility with investors that we had done all this stuff for the Clinton Foundation and that had got all these awards. And so we showed that, like, serious people were willing to work with us. And so you're just trying to again, associate yourself with credibility as much as you can. Okay, so that's the first key. Yeah. Associate yeah. with credibility. Yeah. All right. Well, we have our principles of persuasion here. Okay, um, what's the first principle? First is, is demonstrate that you understand their priorities, right? So Makes sense. So like, if whether you're talking to a publicist or a manager or a charity or the talent or whatever, like they all have different priorities. And so... You really have to show them like, hey, I get it. You know, and the way you do that is first you ask questions and like make and make sure you're listening and you understand like this is what they want to accomplish. It's amazing how much this overlaps with journalism. Yeah, absolutely. The questions, the listening, and then the storytelling. Yeah, that's the key to, I mean, it's the key to all human communication, you know, listening and storytelling. It's like how the world goes forward. It's the difference between us and the other species. All right, we're going to get to that, but <laughs> that's like big game. Yeah. I got a, I just got a question about publicists. Okay. Because publicists are in like a really difficult situation. They are, they can't make a mistake. If, if they go out on a limb and say, yeah, go ahead and do this. 
and somehow the interview backfires. Lots of times a publicist gets fired. Mm -hmm. So basically, when you get people who don't want to make mistakes, they're not going to take risks. And here you are, you're a young company, mm -hmm. and you don't really have the track record yet. What do you do to persuade the publicist? You know, we, we persuaded other entities first. I and thought then, the publicist is a tough nut to crack. We did okay. not start with the publicist. Oh, okay. Other people who tried to do this started with the publicist. And, you know, there's publicists, they're so busy. They're balancing so many things. They've got so many different objectives. They're working with so many different clients that are incredibly busy. They work so hard. And so, understandably, like, it, it, there's very little upside for them in taking a risk like that. Now, a lot of publicists will do that and, and get super creative, but it just it didn't make sense to go to them as a gateway in, even though it felt like the most direct way to the town, which is just not what we did. We would go work with the charity partners because there you always want to align yourself with the person who has the greatest incentive to make it happen. Right. And so we would go to a director of development at a charity and say, Hey, like here's a new, you know, funding stream for you. You have a relationship with the talent. Very smart. Let's go to let's, you know, th this is what's possible. And you would get creative people at these smaller charities that say, yeah, like this is a, this is exciting. I could see, I want to see this in the space. I want to see this exist. I'm sick of doing galas and same old, same, same old, old, same old connect with the connected. Yeah, exactly. That's right. All right. Yeah. Now, now I'm learning yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you connect with the connected and now from what I'm getting at is actually quite the opposite of the situation with the publicist because they are tired of doing the same old things. Yeah. And if they do the same old thing that they did last year, then it's just hard to generate the interest and the response. You need to do something new. So they need to take risks. That's they right. need to do new things. That's right. That's why it's ingenious to go to those people. Well, we would go there... But why it's ingenious to go to the charity people? Yeah, to go yeah. to the to yeah. connect with the connected. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Because they needed you. Yeah. Where absolutely. you're only a headache to the public. That's right. That's right. Or just more time that they had to spend listening to your ideas and okay, so I get yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a look. I want to be clear. There's a lot of publicists that have been incredible partners to us once we kind of had established ourselves and de-risked ourselves a little bit, understandably. And so, because they also, publicists tend to be empathetic people. They under, they tend to care about charities. A lot of them have charity pro bono. So they like the fact this was doing this. They like the fact this was a win-win for their client. Not only could they raise a lot of money for the charity, but they could help promote different projects they're doing, which is the whole point of the model. Um, but it just like, you know, when someone has that much influence, like make their job easier for them. Like go in and say, hey, here, we've like set this up for you for success everyone's excited this you know we've we've done the work so you're not the one coming to your client like the charity has come to your client and that makes it easier for you okay now this is really starting to yeah. make some sense yeah. here yeah okay so is there another step after that you connect with the connected and now you've got to pull off something that's turns heads uh, because you've got to create a new kind of event or a new kind of revenue stream that gets people excited. Was that difficult or was that something that you innately hadn't it was in difficult. the palm of your hand? Yeah, we, that I was mean, difficult? Yeah, it didn't work for the first 
year. Oh, I don't yeah. want to hear that, man. Oh, you're getting beaten up for a year? Oh, yeah, that's part of the journey, man. You know, like, you got to persist through. Um, like, entrepreneurship is hard. You know, there's some rocket ship stories that we hear a lot about, but, like, that's the rarity. Like, people who make it have, you know, it's gr- about grit. It's about fighting through that stuff. And we had, oh, we, we struggled for many years before this started to take off. What is the hardest part about being an entrepreneur? You know, I think I think what can happen with entrepreneurs is they can wrap their whole identity into entrepreneurship. And then everything that comes with that um, can then be kind of a blow to their ego and all the things. And that certainly was the case for me. It took me a while to evolve past that. Oh, so when things aren't going right, it's, it's personal attacks. or There's you- that. But then there's also, especially when, like, I remember when we hired our first person and that was outside me and Ryan and and she had a kid and I was like oh my gosh like we're supporting the kid yeah and I felt this sense of responsibility you know that was like was wow this is not about us anymore like this is this there's this there's this person on the other side that's relying on the salary I really want to make sure this works so that you know so you feel that weight you know you, you feel the weight of a lot of people um and and so that you know that in combination with just the unpredictability of it really long hours all those things can be challenging if you don't get in the right mindset and the really the way that you get in the right mindset is you have to believe so fundamentally in what you're doing you also have to believe that like it's good for somebody beyond yourself right like the service of others is the greatest fuel for persistence and so if you don't have that and you're an entrepreneur you know if you if you're just kind of doing it for your self actualization or make a lot of money it's well there's nothing wrong with that but it can be hard to persist through the challenging times so you've raised what like 130 million dollars through all these events yeah and it's amazing you go to your website and you see photos of people who are directly impacted yeah were you able to like see ahead back then see your website now and are you able to look ahead 10 and 20 years and see what it might be i would say yes um to both like not that we're prescient but we knew we fundamentally believe in the chain reaction of good you know like i fundamentally believe that we are all interconnected Every action we take impacts some people directly, but all of us indirectly. And so, and we, and that was kind of the beauty of storytelling for us is that you could create this virtuous cycle of connecting people to one another, wanting to help each other, feeling more connected. And so, um, you know, we always thought there was a great beauty in talent who have built these amazing careers and overcome so much to be able to have the influence that they do using their gifts for good and then that impacting, you know, a recipient on the other side of a charity's life and then what that means for their family like we have all these stories of that chain reaction of good of like where the money that was created as a result of these initiatives then in some cases saved the lives of people that then had a ripple effect to their family you know and then the same thing with winners we've had winners whose lives have been changed by these experiences that have gone on to do amazing things start charities start initiatives that then have had a ripple effect of others so we could always see that we always you know and we always wanted to be able to have our site as a place to visualize that 
it doesn't yet in a way that we're satisfied with. But down the road, you know, 10 years down the road, we see going and doing these experiences, you know, around in every city around the country and around the world and actually building tangible projects that the donors can then see and have their names on the bricks and they can see the impact that they have and that creates a ripple effect in a community you know where we're raising a billion dollars a year for charity you know not a hundred million and the ripple effect of what that has and then amazed to be a place where people can actually visualize and see that and see like the good that they've done in the world and then they want to do more of it so Jennifer Garner is going to make cookies with somebody. Yeah. How, how does that, who, who comes up with this idea? Is it hers? Is it yours? How does this whole thing work? We have a team here, a creative team. We call the Tiger Team. Um, yeah. And then they sit around and say, Jennifer Garner, they, cookies. They do. They do. They're amazing. Like they, um, you know, it's a bunch and they of people. Reach, they research. They do a bunch of research. They figure out the audience. They figure out what would be fun. They, they've got a you know, a formula for what makes for a good campaign. And they're incredible storytellers. So it's guys um, named Brent and Mike and Justin and Ben and uh, Morgan and Devin and Delaney, um, Cody, like colleague, this whole this whole team of people um, that, you know, are just incredible creators. And so they, they not only come up with what the idea is for the experiences, they then create the content um, around like how we can get the word out. So if they come up with you should ride in a tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger and crush things, they then create a video around what that looks like. And then they, and then you go, at this point, you go straight to Arnold or do you go to Arnold's foundation? Or? With Arnold now, we, yeah, we, I mean, we've done, I think we've done 11 with Arnold at this point. So we, you know, we're in direct contact with him. And so, so it's like, what do you got for me this month? Yeah, well, we, we, we pitch him ideas. Yeah, we pitch him ideas and these, there's always got a new idea. Um, we, um, we do the, you know, like with Jennifer, she's amazing and that goes through her team but like you know they they figure okay what would people be excited about jennifer what would be great content and like the cookies was you know that that worked for her right riding a tank with jennifer probably doesn't make as much sense i got it okay tasting wine with jennifer lawrence yes how did that come about same thing like she's awesome we knew she was game for a cool experience She's a fun-loving person, you know, and so we pitched that, and she said, "Yeah, that sounds fun," and and then we created the vi- they created the idea for the video, and which you know was either a wine review or a review for her movie, and she had to guess what it was, you know, and um, and that did really well. She of course is incredibly charming and funny, and so she did that video. It took off, and and then it you know raised a million dollars for her her cause, and. Uh, and then like the experience the winner had with her was like incredibly fun. She was like they spent like five hours together drinking wine and were like just had so much fun. George and Amal Clooney. Yeah. How did that come about? A double date. Double date with them. You know, we've worked with we did we first did a campaign with George back in two thousand thirteen. It was one of the ones that put us on the map. It was when he was still single. And so we did a date with him to the premier monuments men and it took off and and got crazy amount of attention and you know he had done an auction for something similar to go to a um to go to a premiere and it had raised 
$75,000 at auction and with us it raised 1.4 million and oh, they, so they, it was a good yeah, return. Yeah. <laughs> and so now we've done this was our seventh one with George, sixth or seventh one that we've done with George. Um, but you know, everyone loves a mall and so we just kind of threw out like hey, it'd be great to get a mall involved and they they were excited about that and and uh, and then he was just you know, George is awesome. He's super passionate about the Clooney Foundation for Justice, like very committed to what he does in the world. Amal is a, you know, is a civil and international rights lawyer at the highest level. So like she's very committed to it and they're willing to have fun with it. The Pope. The Pope. How do you get to the Pope? That's a crazy one. I mean, we that's like a five minute story. I can tell you the story. No, does, you know, I yeah. want to hear the whole okay. thing. Yeah. So that one. That was a cre- so. Oh, you're sitting a bunch of guys sitting around. Okay, the Pope. Well, yeah. Well, what it was wild. What happened? So basically, that started through another experience actually with Bono. So what happened was there's this girl named Chloe, who's a 15 year old girl at the time, living in Northern California, and Chloe is born with a club foot, and she goes to high school, and these mean girls start picking on her, and one day. In front of the entire school, they six girls pin her down on the lunch table, pull her shoe off, and show everyone in the school what her kind of deformed club foot looks like. This sounds like it's out of a movie. I know, and it really happened. So we have there's footage of it, um, and so and they and somebody filmed it. Well, no, it was on the school's um, cameras. Oh, I see. Area. Okay, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was scared it was going to go out no, over the internet. No, and, okay, no, that thank God. Um, so then she goes home. She's obviously very depressed. She locks herself in her room. Her dad is named Dane, who's this amazing guy who um, doesn't know what to do with his daughter, who's like, he's worried she's going to hurt herself, you know, like he's a 15 year old girl. Um, so he's a huge U2 fan and he starts sharing U2 songs with her. And she really gravitates towards this song called Invisible, which basically says, like, you can't see me, but I'm here. It's this anthemic song. And she starts listening to Invisible every single day on loop and decides to start going back to school. It's just like really inspirational thing for her. So at the same time, we happen to have a fundraiser to benefit Red to meet Bono backstage at a concert and her dad, Dane, entered and he won. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. So, and so this th- is going to lead to the Pope. Yes, this is going to lead to the Pope, <laughs> oh, I promise man. you. Yeah, and so then... Um, I love this. Yeah, and so then... So this is the beginning of Omega. So there's only five of us on the team at that point. So I go out to do this experience and we're in Denver backstage at a concert and I'm in the room with Chloe and her dad, Dane. And Chloe's there and she's got crutches and and she, she had just had this surgery and you could tell like she just had a lot of weight on her. But I had no, not, I knew none of that backstory. And so I just kind of noticed that. And then Bono came in and he, um, there's a red guitar sitting there because it was from Red Campaign. So he signed the guitar. And then his, um, the, he said to the dad, like, you know, tell me your story. And he said, well, this isn't really about my story. It's about my daughter Chloe's story. So he said, what's your story, Chloe? And Chloe said to Bono, she said, I was assaulted. And your song, Invisible, helped me get through it. And he said, you were insulted? Like, they called you names? And she said, no, I was assaulted. And she said it with this gravity that you could tell something very serious had happened. But I didn't have the background and Bono obviously didn't have the background so you're both looking at each other and obviously he's an incredibly emotionally intelligent person so he 
so he kind of turned to her very compassionately and said, you know, well, how did Invisible help you, Chloe? And she said, well, it gave me the strength to stand up to these girls who did this to me. It gave me the strength to stand up to my school to make sure it doesn't happen again. And he said, well, you know why you were able to do that? He said, because the arc of the universe bends towards justice and love. And when you have right on your side, it's like this big fist, not to hurt people with, but to fight for what's right. And you could see her kind of taking this in, right? And then he said, what's your passion, Chloe? And she kind of shook her head and she almost like she was embarrassed. She said, I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet. He said, that's okay. He said, we have a prayer in my family and we say this prayer in church, but we, we're not a righteous family. We also say this prayer in the pub. And the prayer is, I'm available for work. He said, make yourself available for work and it'll be revealed to you. And you could just see in this moment, obviously, like the way Bono says it is much more poetic than I can say it. And and but you could it was the most magical moment I've ever seen. Like you could literally see the weight lifting off of this girl. Just like it, it was just the transformation in front of your eyes. So she goes home and she decides she's going to use this extraordinary experience for good. And she starts telling other girls at her school about what Bono had said and what she had experienced and like started rallying around this and like some, you know, and another school had some girls that were bullied there. And so they hear about the story and the parents ask her to come do it there. And then she goes to another school and another school. And then she decides, okay, I'm going to turn this into a thing. And so she calls it stand beautiful. And it's this movement about embracing your differences. And now she's speaking. And then she gets asked to do a TEDx talk. She does a TEDx talk. There's a publisher from Penguin Random House there. Oh, no. They give her a book deal. She has a book called Stand Beautiful. It's right up there on that oh, shelf. I, yeah, I can yeah, get that yeah, book. Yeah. Okay. And, and now she travels around the world and she goes and gives speeches and she goes and deals with people who've been bullied and she tells them this story and she helps people. And one day she was at this experience or this, this speaking event that she did with another extraordinary young girl. And she told the story and the extraordinary young girl's dad came and said, wow, that's amazing. What's this Omaze company? You know, I'm really interested in this. I've got this partnership with the Vatican. I think they would want to hear about it. And so then he reached out to me and he said, can I introduce you to the Vatican? Would you come meet them? So I went and went with a cardinal, Cardinal Turkson, who's this amazing cardinal. And then he introduced me to Pope Francis and we had a campaign with Pope Francis. <laughs> What was that like? Was, I mean, I mean, it was wild. Having, having and you came in like a little late in the story. Not a little, not not very late, but first time you heard it, you're standing there wondering what, what happened. Yeah, I mean, I found out afterwards that night, like the whole story. The other part of the story that's crazy, I didn't even say it, is, you know, that he had signed that red guitar at right. the beginning, and the dad Dane had asked Bono, you know, when was the last time you played that guitar, and he's like. Um, you know what? I don't know. But there's a guy whose job it is to know that. And so he uh, so he gave that guy's email to Dane. And so Dane emailed the guy and said, hey, you know, the red guitar. When was the last time Bono played it? And this guy didn't have any context in the story or anything like that. And so he wrote back a week later and he said, last time Bono played that guitar was in Dublin in the studio when he was writing the song Invisible. Oh, yeah. man. And then that's. Oh, man. And Bono had no idea. No. But that's, you know, that's the magic of good. Okay. I knew there was a reason to take you back to that moment. Yeah. I didn't know why. And I'm wondering, like, what was it that made me stop you and take you back? 
because now I'm going to take you forward mm -hmm. to the Pope. Yeah. What's it like now to walk in and meet the Pope? Um, you know, it's a really, it's a fascinating experience. I mean, the Vatican is such a complex institution, you know, and, um, and when you go in there, especially in the rooms that we were in, it's, you can feel the weight of the history of all the good choices and the not so good choices that were made in that, in that building. Um, but you know, this Pope obviously has inherited a lot of challenges, but like you can tell he authentically wants to do good with his position, you know, but he's, he's just a man, you, you know, like he's like, there's no pretense. There's no kind of really even like an aura of some, you know, extraordinary human, like he's just a man that's trying to do his best, you know? And he was, he was really like, he's a great listener. He makes you feel you know, like you hear a lot about leaders like that. He makes you feel like you're the only thing going on in the world right there. He's very present. Um, I was talking through a translator, you know, and we were, and he was just like the guy just, previous posts would never do an omaze. You know, like they would just not like, like that's, that would be, they wouldn't even meet with me. And so he just got it, but he's just a, he's just a guy. Was there something about like looking him in the eye or shaking his hand that you remember that stands out? And does it stand out just because he's just a guy? Well, like, it was great because I had to tell him I um, I was supposed to meet him a year ago. And then I had this crazy experience where I was like declared dead and they brought me back to life. And so I was in the hospital for three months. And so I couldn't go meet him. And so when I met Holy, him, you were supposed to meet him, but the crazy experience, which we'll get to in a yeah, second, yeah, that stopped it. That stopped it. So when I got there, the and then the red guitar took you to it. Yeah, well, that was the red guitar was before the experience. Then I was supposed to meet him, and then it got delayed, and then I finally met him. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, but uh, the the when I so I had to explain to him, I had to remind him, like I was the reason I had to reschedule on Pope oh, so you Francis. told him the story. I had to tell him the story of what had happened to me. You had to yeah. reschedule. Yeah, yeah. No wonder you weren't mad when I was late today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, things happen. Things happen. Okay, um, so hold it. Now we got to know the story. So what... Oh, with, with me? Yeah. What happens to get you to reschedule with the Pope? Um, so... I had this crazy experience where, so when I was born, my stomach was twisted in a knot and I was supposed to die when I was born. And the scar tissue from that surgery broke off all these years later and it created this bowel obstruction. Um, and so all I knew is my stomach was, I didn't know that at the time. All I knew is my stomach was hurting more than it normally did. So I called my buddy who's a doctor and I said, you know, hey, this was going on. He said, you should go to the hospital. Um, you know, your appendix might be bursting. So I went to the hospital and I was supposed to meet our COO, Helen, at the time. So she came until my parents came and my parents came and I was there and they were doing all these tests and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And so 11 o'clock at night, they said to Helen and my parents, you guys should go home. We're going to keep Matt here overnight. And if this doesn't unwind itself overnight, then we'll do surgery in the morning. So they, they go home. Helen pulls into her driveway and it's, you know, 1130 by this point. And she goes 
to get out of her car and something is telling her, some voice is telling her like that she needs to go back to the hospital. And Helen is British in a COO. She's not like a Venice, listen to the cosmos type person, you know? <laughs> so it's very out of character, but the voice was undeniable. So she decides to drive back to the hospital. So she gets back around midnight and if she had not come back, I would have died like 45 minutes later. Why? Because my blood pressure had plummeted and unexpectedly, and the machines had not sufficiently alerted the nurses. And so I was just literally like slipping away into the, <laughs> into the night. And, and so she went and she had been in the hospital with her grandmother. And so she had seen, um, she kind of knew her way around. And so she had recognized that like my blood pressure was insanely dangerous. She was looking at, she was the, looking monitors. at the monitors. Yeah. Yeah. And cause it was so low. Oh, and so she went and got the nurse oh, and said, man. look at this. And he said, that can't be right. He wouldn't be getting oxygen to his brain. And she, and so he went and got another machine, did another. So they test. thought, the, 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 you know what? I know this word metrology. It's making sure those numbers are accurate on those machines. Oh, I don't know that word. Yeah. Yeah. So he went to make right. sure it was accurate. Right. Cause he said you wouldn't be getting oxygen. It's impossible. To his brain. It's yeah. impossible. Yeah. But then it got the same readout. So then he was going to get another machine and she's like, no more fucking machines, get a doctor. And so she went and got a doctor. She brought the doctor in. The doctor took one look and she called in a crash team. They rushed me down to the surgery. I came out of surgery and they said to my mom, they said, look, the good news is we figured out what it is. It's a bowel obstruction. The bad news is his heart rate is continuing to plummet. And we don't know why. And he's in critical condition. And so then a couple hours pass and my mom goes downstairs to get my dad and my brother. And she comes back upstairs and she hears over the loudspeaker code blue in room 437 and my mom knows works in a hospital she knows that means flatline yeah. and she knows that's my room so she rushes upstairs and she gets to the door and the nurse is there and she says i'm i'm sorry but you can't come in this is very serious and she said look my son i was there when he came in this world if he's leaving this world right now i'm gonna be in that room so she let her in the room and she came in and they were doing the compressions and they were doing the electric shock treatment and my body was bouncing up and down, but I wasn't responding, you know, and my mom started to crumble. It's one thing to lose a child. It's another thing to be in the room when it's happening, you know, and at the same time, my dad was outside with my brother and this doctor came out and said to another doctor in front of my brother, not knowing it was my brother, like, Hey, we lost this guy. He's gone. And so my oh, brother man. pushed my dad in the room and said, if Matt's passing, you need to be in there with mom. So my dad came in and he was crying so loudly, understandably, that he came in and my mom like turned away from me to him to say like, Gary, you gotta be quieter. They're gonna kick us out of the room, you know? And he was like, if I can't cry right now, like, when can I cry? You know, but, um, but when she said that, she, when she turned away, she said she saw something she'd never seen before in a hospital. She said every nurse and every doctor and every staff member in the ICU had just gravitated outside the window of the room and there was, 40 of them and they look like this silent church choir and they were just leaned in sending in this positive energy and she was so moved by these people that didn't know her son you know and but they were sending in love it was really this like kind of transcendent spiritual experience for her so she kind of turned back to the table and it like it filled her up with strength and she started coaching me you know, and she just said, Matthew, David Polson, these people are fighting to save your life. They're fighting so hard to bring you back, but you're not fighting hard enough. 
You need to fight harder. These, oh, these people are fighting to save your life. Oh, yeah. And she knew it was competitive and she just thought like, this is going to, he's going to respond to this. And, and she just kept saying that and saying them. they said it was a surreal experience because there's a 65 year old mom standing next to the table and these nurses and doctors are thundering down these like almost violent, you know, compressions and shocks. And she's just coaching in the middle of it. And, you know, and the flat line went on for four and a half minutes, which, you know, is a really long time. And, but they, because she was there, like just fighting, they kept fighting and they just kept going. But at one point, like, you know, she's thinking about If she head. hadn't been there, they, they might've they just might have said that's it. it. Yeah. It's hard to say, you know, they'll fight there. There's often cases where they'll fight for a half hour, you know, but, but it's, it's case specific, you know, and, and there was something, but they about, weren't going to yeah, do that. Was, they, no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. There was, they all said there was something about her being in that room. You could feel the energy of it. And, you know, and, um, and at one point though, like in the back of her head, like she, she's works in a hospital. She hears every day, like what do they call it? You know? And she thought, what did she do? What does she do? She was in a blood bank, but she's right next to the ER. Okay. You know? And so she, she's just, you know, you hear these things are allowed to speak all the time. She knows. Yeah. And, and so she, at one point, like the kind of the chief doctor turned his head away and almost like shook his head despairingly and like he was going to call it. And she's like, no, 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 please, please. And then all of a sudden he looked back at the table and said, wait a second, I think we have a pulse. And all of a sudden my eyes opened up <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Yeah. and I looked up at my mom and I looked at my dad and I kind of smiled and then I slowly like lifted my right arm and then gave a thumbs up. Oh, did they do a movie of this? <laughs> I mean, it's wild. Yeah. No, there's no movie, but um, yeah, it's a wild. I mean, it's only happened a year ago, but uh, but it's yeah, it's wild. And that's how you got a rain check with the Pope. That's how you got a rain check with the Pope. Yeah, far that's where we started. So you had to tell him the story. So I had to tell him. I didn't go into that detail. I just said, you know, I just talked about um, it was a transformational experience. Because like when the, when I left the hospital, the doctor said to me, he sat at the edge of my bed, and he said to me, look, when I finish my career 30 years from now, and I'm talking about the most extraordinary case I've ever seen, this is going to be it. Because even after I was resuscitated, like after I came back, there was two more days where I was in a coma and they had me at 0% chance of survival. It was like... Hold it, these... but you gave the I know, thumbs but then up. I went back out. Yeah, there's like a whole <laughs> other side of... There, yeah, there's, it might be for another podcast, but there's a whole other like... There's like five more miracles that happened between, after that. It was craziness. Yeah. And so, but when I, when, but I, when I was leaving, he was like, look, we had you at 0% chance of survival for two days. The fact that we have you going home with your full faculties, we have no medical explanation for that. And I said, well, do you have a guess? You know, and, and he said, look, we're really inspired by your mom. They did the second surgery after this and she was grabbing people by the cheek. And she said, look, this is my son, but today this is your son and this is your brother. Oh man. And this company is trying to do good in the world and you need to help them. So he said, we were very motivated by that. But he said, outside of that, there were larger forces at play. That was just us. And I said, well, as a man of science, how do you define those larger forces? And he said it was love and it was optimism that brought you back. So I explained that to Pope Francis, that I was moved by love and optimism, and I wanted to help spread that as far as I could. What do you say? 
He was down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, in, bro. Yeah, I'm in, bro. <laughs> he gave me a fist bump. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Can you top that? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty wild, right? <laughs> okay, so you got now you got this chance. Yeah. I don't know. What do you... Do you know what it, do you, can you remember what it feels like to almost be dead or be dead and come back, whatever it was? Yeah, I had a very vivid kind of comeback to the light experience. Not in the traditional way, well, not that there's a traditional way, but not in the way that I, at least. Everybody talks about it. On TV yeah. where like there's a tunnel and there's a light and yeah, you walk yeah, down yeah. and it's really, that was not my experience. You didn't have that. No, it was, it was. You um, had a red guitar, man. I didn't ever, you know, it was, these things are ineffable. It's hard to like really explain it. But the best way I can explain it is it was almost like if you've ever scuba dived or snorkeled and you're deep underwater, you know, you've seen a movie about them being deep underwater and you're looking up at the surface of the ocean and you can see a little bit of light coming through. It was like that, but the light felt like both impossibly far away and also reachable at the same time, you know, and it was the water, it was dark, but it also felt light. I don't know how to explain it, but it, it, it wasn't like green pastures and angels. It was just like, it was mostly dark, but it felt like this cosmic energy water where it's like they say in Buddhism, when you become nothing, you become everything, or you're both a, a drop in the ocean and also the entire ocean. Like, that's what it felt like. I just felt total oneness with everything around me. And I could hear my mom from the light saying, Matthew David Polson, you need to fight, you know, and I could hear that. And, and I remember just like thinking, well, I gotta, I gotta fight to get back there. And, but also feeling like I could literally see the love being sent me, you know, like those people outside the room, my friends all knew. So they were sending injury. My family's obviously there. And it was like, it was help lifting me back in my fight it was collaborating with me you know and I remember just fighting and fighting and fighting but also feeling like this is this is on my side and this is we're all connected you know I just like it, there's this sense of like just wholeness that I've never ever experienced before you know and and then I remember fighting and fighting and then finally like bursting kind of back into the world through this light and then just looking at my mom and looking at my dad after what felt like an infinitely long journey and then just feeling like pure joy, you know, just like a connection to every life form in the world in one moment. Was there any music playing while this was going <laughs> no on? No music. <laughs> what, what is this, what does an experience like this do to you because it must make you very conscious of every tick of the clock you have and what you can do with every tick of the clock going forward. Yeah, I mean, it um, it changes you fundamentally, not in ways that are obvious from the outside, you know, like I still, I came back to the same job and, you know, I have the same friends and, but, um, you know, it, it, it teaches you a couple of things. It, like one is like just to love more you know, like just love at every opportunity. You never know how far that's gonna go. Like I'm only on this planet because people sent me love at that time. If they had not, I would not be here. I know that for a fact. And so 
you just never know how far that's going to go. And so I try to practice it at every opportunity. I try to send a video to someone at once a week telling them what I think of them. I try to write an email to uh, someone on our team once a week to tell them why I'm grateful for them. Just like I try to just spread that as much as I can, you know, and and even when you're down or sometimes you feel unworthy of love or whatever, like it's actually I've realized now that's the best time to do it, you know, because it actually lifts you, it lifts you up. When lifts you, you when to you, the yeah, light. Exactly. Because when you get, you know, I've been in places of deep depression and stuff like that. And the only thing that got me out was actually like giving, you know. Um, and so I, tr- I practice that. Um, I don't waste time on small decisions anymore. I used to overthink things and worry about what other people thought and get trapped up in my ego and all that stuff. Like the ego is a prison that we can all break free of, you know? And so a lot of those small decisions are just like ego driven, you know? And so I just like, I don't waste time on that. Like I used to. Um, and then I just like, I really believe optimism is a superpower now. And I try to practice that. Like, and I look at it not as like this binary thing that you're either a pessimist or an optimist. Like I believe there's optimism skills that can be developed over time and forged in adversity and practiced. And the better you get at them, the more you can kind of make the impossible possible. Not in like the secret manifesty way, but like by really visualizing what you intend to happen and thinking through what the obstacles would be along the way. And, you know, like I'm only here because people send me optimism, you know, and those doctors fought for me, even though like a thousand other times they fought and lost and had to go tell someone they lost their child, you know, but they, they were optimistic through it, you know, and I'm here as a result. So that's the main things is like love more, waste less time on small decisions and practice optimism. Do you ever, uh, have you ever met Bert and JJ Jacobs from life is good? No, you have to, you, God, I'm going to set this up. Yeah, do it. Because they are masters of optimism. Yeah. When you get together with them, man, there's there's going to be some light in the room. <laughs> 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 and uh, I, I am so overjoyed to meet you. Thank you. It, it's it's wild. If If I never meet you again... I'll always have you with me in Aww, some way. I feel the same way, man. You got a great energy. It, 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 I think it's your energy. That you was, <laughs> it was just bouncing off. It's a two-way me. street. It's a two-way street. This, like, you know what really hits me the hardest is like you start to tell a story, and it's oh, this girl was in high school, and these mean girls flatten her on a table and show her club foot off yeah. and and then the the next thing you know like the next thing you know the story is just taking you on this adventure <laughs> and then you can't even get to the pope right away because <laughs> this this crazy thing that happens yeah. and shows you the light in the world and that to me is what life is about it's the story yeah. It's it's the not knowing what's coming next and where it's going mm. and just makes you want to go off on the adventure. And I I cannot imagine in 30, 40, 50 years what you're going to be able to put together because of where you are now and using everything you know and turning it exponential. 
I'll, I'll leave you with the last question. Do you have any sense of what you may be able to do in 40 or 50 years? You know, I, I hope I'm still out of maze. I hope we're raising $100 billion a year for charity and showing people that we're all interconnected. I hope I have a family that feels like I loved with all I could to them. I hope I have friends that feel like I loved with all I could to them. Um, and, you know, and I hope to, I, I just want to spread love and optimism. And I think there's a lot of different ways to do that, but I think Amaze is a great vehicle for that. And, and hopefully I'm doing that in service of kind of greater consciousness. Well, I'm taking it with me out in the streets right now, brother. <laughs> yeah, there you go, chain reaction. Thank you so much. It's an absolute yeah. delight to listen to your story. Oh, thank you. And I hope we do see each other down the tracks. For sure. And, uh, I don't know what's coming your way, but I know it's good. All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> cheers. All right, cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. It has transformed my life. And thanks to all of you who email me with comments and photos of where you listen to big questions. A friend of mine was recently in the hospital, so pardon the delay if it's taken me a while to get back to you. I'm doing my best. Send me an email with your definition of the word comfort, and I'll enter it into a sweepstakes to win a Sportique Big Questions tee. The three winners will be happy they did as soon as they feel that fabric. If you want a Roman comfort, check out sportique.com and get a 20% discount by using the offer code CAL. Also, if you're looking for office space, send me an email. Kevin, the manager, can help you get a 20% discount at WeWork. There's all kinds of options. There's glass enclosed offices, conference rooms, podcast setups, even theater space. Let me know what you like, and Kevin, the manager, will make that discount happen. Thanks for listening, and if you don't mind, please go to iTunes and rate Big Questions. I'm told the more ratings Big Questions has, the more people who've never heard the podcast before will listen. So spread the joy, and I hope to clink glasses with you down the tracks. Cheers. Cheers.